Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. But we started on this, that the seven words from the cross, Jesus' seven statements, and we talked about the fact that there's, there's something about people's last words uttered in this life that, that inspire our curiosity, don't they? And they cause us to be able to treat them as especially weighty. And in Jesus' case from the cross, Jesus makes seven statements known as his seven last words, and each of them help to be able to put into frame who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. They're not arbitrary, they're, they're there on purpose. And so they're recorded for us in the Gospels. And so we spent a bit of time, and we'll do the same today, in, in John chapter 19 and in Luke 23, where these seven statements are recorded. Last week, we looked at the very first statement that Jesus makes on the cross. It's probably the, the one that was the most um, audacious to those who were actually going through with making the crucifixion. Because they would have heard many people say things from a cross, that they would have heard many people yell and utter things that couldn't be repeated. But, but Jesus' first words from the cross recorded, for they do not know what they do. That the very first word that Jesus speaks from the cross is actually a word of forgiveness. And that tells us something about what God is like. It tells us something about this man who hangs on the cross. We looked at the second word that Jesus makes where he gets into a conversation with those who are being crucified either side of him. And in Luke 23 verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That even in the middle of redeeming all mankind, Jesus still has time for a conversation with a sinner happening to be hanging on a cross nearby. Thirdly, we looked at Jesus' third statement from the cross in John chapter 19 and verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his home. We're looking at the seven statements of Jesus, which help to frame for us who Jesus is. Remembering that that even some of the soldiers who stood around Jesus when he was being crucified, when he finally had breathed his last, that they uttered statements like, surely this man was the Son of God. That that even for them, being so close to beholding Jesus' crucifixion, they realized there was something different about this guy. That they'd been to crucifixions before, that they'd seen many people die this way, but, but they'd never seen a man like this before. And so we're going to continue this morning with these seven statements, kind of framing this path as we come towards Easter. But maybe even, if you will, preparing our hearts a little and being reminded again of the goodness of God in that he sent his son in our place. And so we're going to continue this morning with Jesus' fourth word. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. This is what the scripture says. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' fourth word from the cross is that famous statement, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus was born, 
that in Bethlehem at midnight, the heavens were filled with light to welcome his arrival. You remember that, right? That the star was over the manger. And so in Bethlehem at midnight, the heavens were filled with light to welcome Jesus' arrival. But by contrast, here upon Golgotha at midday, the heavens were darkened to veil his death. That that from 12 p.m. till 3 p.m., darkness fell over the land as nature refused to look upon its creator. You know, centuries before, some of the prophets prophesied exactly what would happen to Jesus in such detail that, that, that shows that there is a thread of God's story running the whole way through. But in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, the, the prophet Amos, hundreds of years earlier, prophesied this, Day of doom, says the Lord God, where there shall be sunset at noon and earth shall be overshadowed under the full light. Think of the, the contrast of this, right? That this is Jesus, the, the light of the world, the, the light of life, the one who himself said, let there be light, and it was so, is now cloaked in darkness. And so Jesus cries out from the cross, from the psalm penned by King David, Psalm 22, written hundreds of years earlier when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this for a minute. That, that what a scene this is where God, in flesh, because that's who Jesus is. He's God in flesh. Think about this, where, where God in flesh feels God forsaken. That, that sin naturally does, doesn't it? It, it brings with it consequences. It, even if the Bible didn't say that that was true, we kind of know that to be true because, because sin brings consequences into our lives. And so it brings physical consequences and, and mental consequences but also it brings spiritual consequences as well. And so by standing in the place of sinners, Jesus himself would taste all three of those consequences. That, that certainly Jesus standing in the place of sinners and going to the cross, that, that he understands the physical consequences of sin. These were born even in his own body as, as he was whipped and beaten and then finally put onto the cross. Jesus understood that the physical consequences of sin. But, but Jesus also understood the mental anguish that is a consequence of sin, which pressed in on him so much so that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, if there's another way, then let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus sweat drops of blood. And so Jesus understands and appreciates that by putting himself in the place of you and I, putting himself in the place of sinners, that, that he will experience the physical consequences of sin, but also the mental anguish of sin, but, but also the spiritual separation that comes as a consequence of sin. That, that sin brings with it a sense of abandonment from God, a, a cosmic type of loneliness that goes beyond the kinds of relationships we typically have. And so Jesus' cry of forsakenness is the cry of a man who's put himself in the place of the sinner. Think about this, that earth had abandoned Jesus by lifting his cross above the earth. But also heaven had abandoned him by veiling itself in darkness. And so by taking our place, Jesus chose to experience the suffering and the anguish and the abandonment that is common to mankind as a result of sin. 
And so he cries out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes we kind of read these things, right? And, and it's only really at moments like Easter where we sort of come back and, and for a moment take a little bit longer to consider this story. But what I'm trying to do for us today is to try and put us in the story as if we were there standing around that cross and actually seeing this for the first time. That by taking our place, Jesus chose to experience the suffering and the anguish and the abandonment that is common to all mankind as a result of sin because he was taking our place. Eli Vasali in his book, Night, retells the experiences of surviving the Auschwitz concentration camp in the Second World War. He tells in the book how Jewish prisoners were, were forced at times to watch the execution of fellow Jews. On one particular occasion, he watched a young man, a teenager, on the gallows, struggling and kicking in the throes of death. In hopeless desperation, an onlooker who was also standing nearby was overheard to say, where is God? Where is he? Where is God? Where is he? At that moment, Vesali heard a voice speak into his heart saying, right there on the gallows, where else? He learned, Vesali, that in the darkest moment of his journey, God was actually right there. And the cross of Calvary tells me that that's true. That one of my favorite names for Jesus, right, is Emmanuel. You know, at Christmas time, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And because Jesus himself has experienced moments of darkness like you and I, and has even felt what it feels like to be God forsaken, Jesus really is God with us. Jesus is God who gets us. And he promises to never leave us and to never forsake us. And this is the comfort that we have in Jesus' fourth word from the cross. That Jesus himself cried out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? And so if you and I have ever felt like we were in a place where we are God forsaken, like the whole night has turned to darkness, like we're in the lowest point we could ever possibly be in, then we can reach out and find that there is a savior who understands because he has felt what you have felt and he has experienced what you've experienced. In fact, he's probably experienced it on a degree to which you and I can't even fathom. And so he's the one who's really qualified to say, I'm God with you. Which brings us to Jesus' fifth word on the cross. Jesus' fifth word on the cross is recorded in John chapter 19 and verse 28. It says, later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus' fifth word from the cross is literally that, I am thirsty. It's not surprising that Jesus was thirsty. I mean, you think about it. This has been a pretty big day. It started in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's been a lot that's happened to this point of actually getting to the cross, let alone the actual torment of the cross. I mean, in amongst all of the torture, he's also had to carry his cross some distance. And he's got the tension on his hands and his feet, and his muscles are exposed and overstretched, and his head is throbbing from a crown of thorns that's been pressed in around his cranium, and he's got the swelling of the blood vessels. It's not surprising that Jesus is thirsty. It's surprising that he said so. Think about it again, right? This is God. This is the God who put the oceans in their place 
and made water to flow from a rock, who made the seas and the rivers and the fountains, and he confesses, I'm thirsty. He goes on in verse 29 of John chapter 19. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. That the sponge with sour wine was not the first drink actually offered to Jesus. In Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, we're told that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is kind of interesting. That, That according to tradition, the women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain of crucifixion. And so when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. That was the narcotic drink. But he refused it because he didn't want his senses dulled, choosing to endure with full consciousness the sufferings appointed to him. By contrast, sour wine was a common drink. It was used by laborers and soldiers and was popular because it relieved thirst more effectively than water and was inexpensive. And so the offer of the sip of wine was not intended to numb Jesus' pain, but rather to keep Jesus conscious for as long as possible. And so the first wine, mixed with myrrh, was designed to dull Jesus' pain and to keep him from having to endure the full consequences and consciousness of the cross. And Jesus refuses it. And the second, the sour wine, was given to keep Jesus conscious for as long as possible and so prolong his pain And Jesus drank it. Other criminals would have taken the first, that the wine mixed with myrrh, to ease their torment and then pass on the second one. But Jesus took, here's the point, Jesus took no shortcuts on the way to our redemption. You know, every detail that's in the Bible is not there by accident, it's there on purpose, right? Every stroke and notation. And so even in this, there is something that God is showing us about who Jesus is and what he came to be able to do. They actually say that not only does the scripture record that he was offered this sour wine, but also that it was given to Jesus on a branch of hyssop. It was hyssop that was dipped in the blood of the lamb of the Passover and sprinkled on the doorposts and the lentils of the Jews in Egypt when the avenging angel came and took the firstborn of Egypt. They took the blood of the sacrifice from the Passover and they took the blood of that innocent animal and with hyssop, they painted it on the doorposts and the lentils. It was hyssop that was dipped in the blood of the bird to cleanse the leper as prescribed in the Old Testament law. It was David, King David in the Old Testament, who after his sin after he ends up sleeping with Bathsheba and then orchestrating the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who realizing the mistake that he's made and how utterly undone he is, it was David after his sin who said that he would be purged with hyssop and be made clean. And here's the point. The soldiers intended to mock Jesus by giving him vinegar on the end of hyssop. But little did they realize that the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, was sprinkled by the hyssop And man's guilt was being cleansed and the symbol that God had created was actually being fulfilled. Jesus' fifth word from the cross, I am thirsty. The sixth word from the cross, this is probably the one you've been waiting for, right? This is the one that we always remember, is recorded for us in John chapter 19 and verse 30. 
When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is his spirit. Jesus' sixth word from the cross is, it is finished. And the story of sin and redemption is actually the story of two gardens. It's the story of the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the story of those two gardens. You could also say it's the story of three gardens, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden of an Empty Tomb, because that would also be true. That in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they stood in a garden at a tree and desired to take the place of God, asserting their will over his And as a result, sin came into the world. But here in the Gospels, Jesus is kneeling in a different garden and this time went to a different tree, choosing to take the place of man and bowed his own will to his father's will and redemption came. And so in the same three things that cooperated in the fall are also present now here in redemption. This is true, right? That if you take this just a little bit further, right, when, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, right, when the serpent comes to them and says, is that really what God said? And, and they start to entertain the idea of becoming like God, that they take the fruit and they eat. That's one of the reasons why I don't eat fruit. No, I'm just kidding. They take the fruit and they eat and sin comes into the world. You see that sin really is more than just the things that you do and you say and you think which are contrary to God, Right? Sin is actually a condition which you're born into. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned once and for all. So so in the same way that if you were to trace back our genealogy, you could trace our genealogy, it'd be a bit tricky around some parts, but you could trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve. In the same way that you could trace those physical genetics back, the Bible says there is a spiritual genetics too. That when Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned once and for all. And so every person born after them is born into sin. That means that sin is more than just the things that I do which are wrong or say which are wrong or think which are wrong. Sin is more than that. Sin is actually a condition that we're born into. That's what the Bible is saying. And even if the Bible didn't say it, you and I know that to be true. That that you and I are born into sin. That's why we have such a propensity towards doing the wrong thing. Some of you still aren't convinced. Have you ever noticed that you never have to teach a child how to be selfish? They naturally do that all on their own. You notice your parents never taught you how to do the wrong thing, right? They never taught you how to fight with your siblings. You just naturally learn how to do that. There was never, I've got a brother who's 14 months younger than me. There was never a moment where my parents said to me, do you know what? You boys are playing so well together. We're going to teach you a new game. Here's a stick. You're going to hit your brother. When he cries, hit him again. If he starts to bleed, hit him some more. They never taught us how to do that. There was never a moment where my parents taught me how to swear. Some of you are not quite sure where this is going now, are you? Just trying to stir you up a little bit. You're very quiet. There wasn't like there was a moment where mum and dad are like, hey, and my parents are actually here today. They can vouch for this, right? But there wasn't like there was a moment where my parents are like, you know what, you're doing really good with all these four-letter words. We're going to teach you some more. Just naturally found out how to do that on our own. In fact, if you leave us to our own devices, is it true that that actually we tend to lean towards doing the wrong thing and then as children have to be disciplined into learning how to do the right thing? What is that? That is the weight or the power of sin. 
that you and I are born into sin. Sin is more than just the things that we do or we say or we think, which are contrary to God. No, it's a condition that we're born into. And here's the good news. Since we all have the same problem, we all need the same solution. And so God did not throw up his hands when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and went, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. In all of my sovereignty, what will I do? Do you remember what God did in the garden? When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, it's the first time they become aware of their nakedness. They were not aware of it before then because there was an innocence to their lives that now was lost as a result of shame. And because you and I were never designed for shame, Adam and Eve aren't quite sure what to do with that and so they go and they hide, right? Isn't that true? When a little kid realizes that they've done the wrong thing, what do they do? They go and hide. When they realize they're in trouble, I still do this now. If my mom uses my full name, I go and hide. They go and they hide. Why? Because you and I were never designed by God to experience shame because we're never supposed to experience sin. But when sin came, so did shame along with it. And so Adam and Eve, they take fig leaves and they try and make a covering for themselves that's insufficient. And then they go and hide. And then God comes walking, right, through the garden, as was his custom, which he did in the cool of every evening. And he comes and he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? This is God, right? Sovereign and all-knowing. It's not like God has lost them. There's only two people on the planet. He hasn't lost them. God's not asking Adam and Eve, where are you, for his benefit. He knows where they are. So then why is God asking? He's asking not for his benefit, but for theirs. Because for there to be any path back to relationship with him, they're going to have to first admit where they are in relation to where God is. So God comes looking for them, Adam, Eve, where are you? And they're hiding with these little fig leaves trying to cover up their bits. And do you remember what God does? God actually gives us a picture of what's going to happen. Because remember, he takes an innocent animal and sheds its blood and takes the fur, the covering of that animal, and provides for them a more sufficient covering. That even right back in the garden, God's not throwing his hands in the air going, oh my goodness, I didn't see this happening. What what are we going to do now, angels? No, God is already predicting and prophesying what will happen. That there will be the shed blood of an innocent to pay the price for those who feel the guilt and shame of the sin that they've committed. That there would be shed blood and that there would be a more sufficient covering. Right? Let me take this a step further for you, right? Because some of you are still not quite convinced. You're still trying to track along with this. That where you and I try and use fig leaves to try and create some sort of sham idea of righteousness in our own, in our own strength, God provides a more sufficient covering. So you and I are made righteous not because of what we have done, but precisely because of what Jesus has done. You remember when in the end of Ephesians um, Paul talks about the armor of God, right? The sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. What he describes is the Roman garb, right? He's writing actually this epistle from prison, so that kind of makes sense. But but, but he's describing the Roman garb. And and one of the things he talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. What was true in the first century for Roman soldiers is that they would never wear that that breastplate um, in their armor without having a linen garment underneath. And the reason was is because it would pinch the skin and it would cause rash and irritation. And even in that, there is a picture for us, right? That when you and I try and live 
righteous lives apart from God, it never quite feels right, does it? It kind of pinches the skin and it causes irritation and it's all in our own strength and striving and it doesn't really work. But when you and I say yes to Jesus, we're clothed in his righteousness, like a linen garment that that kind of becomes the shield before that righteous living comes into being in our own lives. And so from the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And he's not describing the end of his crucifixion. He's describing the end of amity with God. That, that right back in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, and through their sin, sin came into all generations. But now, through the sacrifice of Jesus, you and I can be the beneficiaries of a righteousness we did not deserve, of a grace we have not earned, of a mercy that, that actually we did nothing to ever work towards, but we're the recipients of it because God's plan was always for the blood of the innocent to cover for the guilty. And so the same three things which cooperated in the fall are now shared in redemption. That after creation on the seventh day when the heavens and the earth were finished, God said it was very good. And after redemption on the cross, when the work of salvation was complete, Jesus says literally the same thing again. It is good. It is finished. And after both creation and redemption, man finds rest. Looking back upon the first garden, having endured the second garden, Jesus says, it's good, it's finished, it's done. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, you and I can find rest. Jesus' utterance from the cross, it is finished, was not the utterance of thanksgiving because his suffering was about to end. It was a declaration that the purpose of his life had been achieved. Jesus didn't say, it is finished after the Sermon on the Mount or after the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, because his work was not finished until the cross. And because he came to give his life as a ransom for many. From the age of 12, it was Jesus who had said that he would be about his father's business. And now that work that the father had given him was complete. And so Jesus cries out, it is finished. Some of you will be thinking, well, what about the, like, the resurrection? Like, that's important too. Like, there's the work of the cross, and, and what about the resurrection? The truth of it is this, is that everything Jesus needed to accomplish happened at the cross. Nothing was left undone. But what the resurrection is, is the printed receipt. You know, like when you go to a restaurant? You go to a restaurant with somebody, and, and uh, sometimes you go with um, Christians, and they forget that they um, had entrees. And, and if you're the last person to pay the bill... Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? You know when you go to a restaurant with friends and you split the bill, and at the end of the at the end of the bill, they like they print out the bill, don't they? And uh, if they're one of those places, actually splits the bill, which is fewer and fewer places. And but then they sort of cross it out like that's been paid for, and that's been paid for, and that's been paid for, and that's been paid for. And and sometimes you go out with people and, and they forget a whole bunch of things that you end up paying because you're the last one to pay, right? And, and then then very very occasionally you go out with those like really Christian people. And you go to go and pay, and they said, and they cross everything off. They're like, no, no, it's all been paid in full. There's nothing left for you to be able to pay. At the cross, Jesus pays for it all. It's completely transacted. But at the resurrection, that's God printing out the receipt and just going through line item. That one paid for. That one paid for. That one paid for. The resurrection doesn't complete the work. The resurrection 
points to the fact that the work was completed. So when Jesus is on the cross and he says, that was a good place to clap. And everyone else will clap with you. And so when Jesus from the cross says, it is finished, he's telling the truth that there is now a way open for salvation, not based on how good you can be, but based on how good God has been to you. And all you and I need to do is become a recipient of that grace. And by becoming a recipient of his grace, we get to exchange our rags for his riches. We get to exchange our shame for his righteousness. Which brings us to Jesus's. Which brings us to the seventh word. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. As the worship team comes back this morning. This is the seventh word. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' seventh and final word from the cross was this, into your hands I commit my spirit. Can you imagine being there on that day and witnessing all of this? Seeing this happen and hearing what Jesus was saying? Into your hands I commit my spirit is the last thing he says. And this was the prodigal son returning home. We talked about this even only a couple of weeks ago, right? That 33 years beforehand, Jesus had left his father's house. And he'd gone to a foreign country of this world. And there he began to spend his substance, wasting it amongst sinners like you and I. And there was nothing left except for the husks and the sneers and the vinegar of human ingratitude. And now Jesus intends to take the road back to his father's house. So he lets the perfect prayer fall from his lips. Into your hands I commit my spirit. This was not the whimpering prayer of a defeated man. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And so we ought not pity Jesus as a victim. We ought to uphold him and celebrate him as a hero. The scripture says that he cried out with a loud voice, proving that he did not die of exhaustion, but by an act of will. It was the only time in history where the dying man was also the living one. And so Jesus' final word from the cross was not a sigh of death. It was actually a song of victory. Those seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross reveal something to us about who he is. Would you just for a moment, just close your eyes. I'm going to read them out to us one more time. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Most assuredly, I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. The fourth word, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? I'm thirsty. It is finished. And finally, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The seven statements of Jesus from the cross reveal who he is 
and what he came to do. Those six hours that Jesus was on the cross changed the world and your life and mine forever. That in those final hours, Jesus calls us to the pulpit of the cross. And here's the truth. There was never a preacher like the crucified Christ. There was never a congregation like the one which gathered at the foot of the cross. And there was never a sermon preached quite like Jesus' seven statements from the cross. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.